Hello, and welcome to episode 118 of the Decarceration Nation podcast, a podcast about radically reimagining America's criminal justice system. I hope everyone is having a wonderful Martin Luther King Day, and thanks so much for joining us for the first episode of the fifth season of the Decarceration Nation podcast. I'm Josh Ho. Among other things, I'm formerly incarcerated, a policy analyst, a criminal justice reform advocate, and the author of the book, Writing Your Own Best Story, Addiction and Living Hope. Today's episode is my interview with Eric Reinhardt about his work and writing around COVID incarceral spaces, decarceration, and public health. Eric Reinhardt is the lead health and justice systems researcher, data and evidence for justice reform at the World Bank Research Group. He is also a resident physician at Northwestern University Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences. He describes himself as a political and medical anthropologist, psychoanalyst, and resident physician. Welcome to the Decarceration Nation podcast, Eric. Thank you, Josh. It's nice to be here. Thanks so much for doing this. It's uh, And you just told me you just literally got off shift, so it's very nice to have you here. Um, I always ask the same first question. It's kind of the comic book origin story question. How did you get from wherever you started in life to where you were uh you know, doing this work about decarceration uh, in terms of kind of pu- public health. And I'm in particularly interested in, you know, what the pathway was that got you interested in this kind of work. Mm. I'm trying to think about how far back I should, I should go. Well, go as far as you yeah. want. You can start at the very beginning if you want. We've had people start from when they were little kids yeah. and Well, without details then, from my childhood, there were people who were very close to me in my life early on who very much occupied a position at the margins of groups uh, or of society, whether that was from disability or for other reasons. And this shaped me from the time I was very, very young. Uh, And I think that kind of oriented my interests, um, particularly around language, Um, some of the communities I grew up in when I was young, or the deaf communities, where the idea of somebody else speaking for you was incredibly frustrating and incredibly condescending. And as I've gone through life and I trained as an anthropologist, there's a tradition of anthropology that imagines imagines itself as speaking for the downtrodden or those who have been marginalized by systems of power, et cetera, often from great intentions. Um, And some of that work is actually politically very productive but I always felt very uneasy about doing that kind of work. So for a long time, when I was doing my dissertation field work as an anthropologist in Chicago, where I'd gone to medical school, where I had seen a lot of violence, um, I was very careful not to reproduce the history of urban sociology, of urban anthropology in the US that's particularly focused on racialized populations and systems of violence, like gang violence, like police violence, like incarceration, because I didn't want to be yet another external voice that was superimposing these kinds of narratives on others. So my work has always been about, until the pandemic, has been about the stakes of self-representation, the stakes of self-writing, what it means to write oneself from out of a context that's been so overdetermined by narratives of violence. When the pandemic started, things shifted a little bit for me because a lot of the people that I'd become very close to over a decade of field work and just friendship had cycled through Cook County Jail, other jails, prisons. And as part of my own work of tracing kind of the different spaces and power networks that shaped their lives, I myself had moved through these spaces. So when the pandemic started, I was very keenly aware of the way that 
these spaces would have major implications for public health and the rest of society. And I felt like, okay, maybe this is a time I should start writing about these kinds of things directly. Yeah, when I was, uh, before I started doing uh, this kind of work and before I became directly impacted, I worked in higher education and came across a lot of the threads of critical anthropology where they talk about things like this notion that you have to let people speak for themselves, not speak for them. And so it was very strange for me in some ways when I came into being an activist in the criminal justice field, uh, how often people would say things like, uh, we're a voice for the voiceless. Yeah. And, uh, you know, a very uh, good friend of mine, Glenn Martin, uh, said, no, we're not a voice for the voiceless. They have voices. You just have to give them a microphone. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I've, I've always taken kind of more uh, of that uh, or tried to take more of that. I think that's in the same vein of what you're uh, referring to. Is that fair? Or? Yeah, I think so. And I'm particularly interested not just in the fact that people speak. They're always writing. They're always speaking for themselves but also the ways that people invent and create in the process of having to do so from the outside of power. Uh, and there's an inventive possibility that comes out of necessity there that I think has a lot of subversive political power uh, and possibility that is not often taken as seriously as it should be. So yes, very much in line with what you're saying. Yeah, there's a, a movie, I'm forgetting the name of it off of my top of my head, but uh where uh, I believe the main character is the Marquis de Sade and they take everything away from him, including his tongue. And he mm. ends up writing in his own waste on the walls because he just can't, you know, he just has to, to, to yeah. have a way to present his own, uh, you know, his, his own words in his own way. Uh, so we will talk about a bunch of things, including kind of the public health case against incarceration, COVID in prisons and jails. Uh, I wanted to start this season off with COVID again because it's uh, becoming a crisis again. Not that it ever really wasn't, but uh, more acutely a crisis again. Um, but to put everything in context, you know, in some of the stuff that you've written, you kind of compare incarceration in the United States to kind of the rest of the world. Uh, what are some of the things that make the U.S. Uh, system stand out and not in, in a good way? Yeah. Well, there's first of all what I think everybody at this point knows, which is the sheer size of the U.S. system. You know, it's something like 20 to 22 percent of the world's pop incarcerated population is held in the U.S., which represents only 4 percent of the global population. So just the matter of size is, is remarkable. But it's not just the number of people that are held in the system at any one point in time that distinguishes the U.S. system, but also the, the pace at which people are cycled through it. So our jail system features about 11 million distinct admissions and releases every single year. About 5 million different people are represented within those 11 million admission release cycles. But at that scale, the idea that these spaces could ever be separate from our communities, as many people like to imagine, and traditionally in public health, this has often been imagined to be the case. Uh, it's simply not, not plausible. It's not a tenable idea when you have that kind of turnover. Uh, so that, I think that's one of the other distinctive features. The, another is among wealthy nations, peer nations, as the U.S. would like to think of itself in relationship to Western European nations or other nations with a lot of wealth, the conditions in U.S. jails and prisons are horrifically poor. I mean, I, I do identify with a kind of abolitionist ethical horizon and also pragmatic demand now. In that context, still, you can look at places like Finland, Sweden, Norway, 
And I don't think prisons need to exist. I do think we need to have some form of custodial care in many instances, not many, but in some instances, I don't think that should be prison. But you can see facilities within their existing prison systems in other like Nordic nations, for example, where the quality of, of care and facility, just material infrastructure, opportunities that are afforded to people for actual transformative shifts rather than simply retributive punishment are dramatically different from what you find anywhere in the US. Um, so you, the US is not entirely unique in its incredibly punitive retributive character of its penal system, but, but it certainly leads the world, I think, in its uh, insistence on this, despite having more than sufficient resources to provide a very different kind of penal system. You're a, at least do psychoanalysis and you are an anthropologist. So do you have any ideas or what do you attribute our kind of, you know, I have a lot of theories on this myself, but what do you attribute to kind of this unique commitment to just harsh, punitive, non-rehabilitative, non mm -hmm. uh, you know, kind of style of, of, of dealing with folks who've broken the law as opposed to other countries? Well, psychoanalysis is, I think, a very useful discourse for thinking about aggression, hatred, racism. And I think what we see in the U.S. is very clearly uh, an instantiation of a deep sadomasochistic drive within American society, which I think you can find in every society, but it's expressed in different and contingent ways. The U.S. penal system is inseparable from the history of U.S. racism the history of slavery, the history of the denigration of the figure of the black. Um, and this becomes codified in various forms, not just in the penal system, but also is in, entrenched in our economic system, um, in our systems of labor protections and, and hierarchies, all sorts of ways. Um, but I think it's, it's an inescapable, obvious reality. That's what, what is negotiated through the US penal system is the designation of an object fit for hatred. There's this idea in psychoanalysis of extimacy from Jacques Lacan. Um, and the, the extimate relation is something that's characterized, but the thing that is most intimate to oneself, the thing that you can least tolerate about yourself is externalized, put onto another and made into a legitimate object of hatred, it's imagined to be, in that process. And I think what we see with the figure of the criminal, the racialized criminal, pathologized criminal in the US in particular, is a very strong instantiation of that kind of extimate relation. Um, why is it that in the US it's manifested through the carceral system? I mean, you have excellent historians there, and I'm not necessarily thinking through psychoanalytic theory, but I don't think that's so important in this case, but like Elizabeth Hinton and uh, you know, Michelle Alexander and others who have developed many different historical threads and arguments to, to piece together the contingent manifestation of hatred in the U.S. carceral system. Uh, I think that's probably more than I'm prepared to, to speak about, certainly today. I am definitely excited that it's the first time we've talked about Lacan on the podcast, yeah. which I yeah. actually have spent way too much time uh, delving into on my own. Uh, before we, you know, in one of your articles, you talk about two studies that show that higher incarceration rates drove significant increases in community-wide mortality. And this was not COVID dependent. Uh, so as we're sort of building the case towards where we start talking more specifically about COVID, do you want to talk a little bit about this as kind of a foregrounding? Yeah. And if you don't mind, I would zoom out even further beyond the U.S. I mean, you invoked the, his, the international parallel earlier. 
So there's, there are these two studies you mentioned, one by Seth, Seth Prinz and his colleagues at Columbia, and uh, another study that had a, an assortment of people, um, one of which is Jacob Kang from the Vera Institute as part of this. And both of these showed that at the county level, increases in incarceration rates, one was a causal study, the other one was correlative, but uh, were very strongly tied to increases in overall mortality across the whole community for causes that can be linked to things that are exacerbated by the carceral system, whether that's uh, infectious diseases that are transmitted across people, whether that's chronic diseases that are incubated and worsened in this space of intense healthcare neglect. So the fact that the US carceral system severely undermines US public health is not remotely unique to the COVID era. But what we see during the COVID era was also prefigured in many other prior epidemic outbreaks around the world. I think the clearest example, but it's not the only one by far, is um, the post-Soviet uh, Russian TB epidemic. So in the 1990s, with the collapse of the Soviet Union, the disintegration of the welfare state there, increasing rates of poverty, there's also an increasing rate of petty crime as people needed to eat, needed to pay their rent. We know very well that poverty is associated with crime, and you saw that very clearly in 1990s post-Soviet Russia. With that, you also saw a, a near or more than 50% increase in the incarceration rate in Russia from 1990 to the year 2000. Coincident with this increase in the incarceration rate, there was an increase in TB cases in the prison system across Russia. Not just TB or tuberculosis, but MDR TB, multi drug resistant tuberculosis. What you had is you had a lot of people that are going into the prison system, they're maybe diagnosed with TB and they're started on a drug regimen, but then they leave and it's interrupted as they go back to communities. They don't have integration with care there, especially as the Russian healthcare system is collapsing after the collapse of the Soviet Union. So you had a lot of discontinued, disrupted treatment courses. And that is uh, a prime opportunity for the development of bacterial mutations, uh, bacterial, uh, sorry, <laughs> resistance to the antibacterial medications that are used to treat tuberculosis. I'm mixing up my COVID terminology with uh, TB terminology. Uh, and so you had the, the emergence of multi-drug resistant TB in Russia at a very high rate. And in Russia at that time, you didn't have access to the medications needed to effectively treat MDR TB. So this is a huge problem for public health across the entire country. And what you saw was not just increasing in TB outbreaks inside prisons, but then as a consequence in the communities to which people return, to which visitors to return, to which guards return. So ultimately what you had between 1990 and it persisted into the late 2000s, the first decade of the 2000s, is a very large TB outbreak across Eastern Europe that actually went into Central Asia, went ultimately all around the globe. It's, it's impossible to track adequately, but we, ha we have tracked it to places beyond just Russia itself an epidemic that was spurred by the increase in incarceration rates in Russia. We've seen this in Paraguay, we've seen this in Brazil, other studies that have shown that the increase in incarceration rates undermine uh, infection control for TB, but also for hepatitis C, HIV, all sorts of other conditions. So that's the backdrop for COVID. So when COVID began, there were a lot of people, their voices didn't gain detraction that they should have, but a lot of people were publishing everywhere they could, speaking to everyone they could to emphasize that if you have pandemic come to the US with our carceral system, an airborne viral pathogen like this, 
it is going to be quickly multiplied within these spaces that are very tightly uh, packed, unsafe, don't have proper healthcare, and it's going to then roll back out into communities. And that's exactly what's happened. I think it's maybe happened at a scale that's even exceeded some people's expectations. Um, but none of this was unanticipated. And not just because we've seen that, that mass incarceration undermines public health always in the US, but also because we've seen specific epidemic dynamic elsewhere. I mean, you would definitely think that if people just get the basic principle that people come in and out of prisons every single day, right. and if you make them an accelerant, that's going to mean more comes back in your community. I don't know why people don't get that, but people don't seem to get that. It's very confusing, which kind of brings us to COVID. Yeah. Uh, many of us all across the country worked extremely hard, uh, screaming, yelling, jumping, you know, doing everything we could possibly do to convince politicians that decarceration and vaccination for our brothers and sisters inside and for correctional officers was a moral and public health imperative. As an anthropologist, how would you describe what happened? You know, it's a good illustration of what's happened throughout the pandemic in U.S. public health writ large which is we knew what was gonna happen. Anybody that had paid attention to the epidemiological dynamics around prisons, jails, anywhere in the world had seen past outbreaks of different pathogens. We knew what would happen. There was not a dearth of knowledge that precipitated the crisis that came or the worsening crisis that came because there's always been a crisis within US jails and prisons. It was a, a dearth of effective political mobilization. And that's, I mean, I think it implicates us um, not just the lawmakers that we're constantly criticizing very appropriately, but we can't figure out, we haven't figured out how to mobilize effectively to shift this system. And yes, one can decry it in moral terms. You can decry it in public health terms. It's completely irrational. You can use criminological evidence. I have, I'm no fan of the field of criminology, which I think often kind of just perpetuates more and more research about things we already know the clear answers to. But, you know, leverage any field. This does not make sense. This harms everybody, and it especially harms the people who are inside, which are not just the 2 million people, but the 70 million people in the US that have criminal records, live with criminal records. Not all of them have been incarcerated, but a lot of them have. So what we had was total inaction, not total, but near total inaction. The level of action that we saw taken was woefully inadequate to the scale of the problem and remains so now two years in nearly. Um, I don't, I, it was very depressing to me. <laughs> At the outset of the pandemic- Very depressing I, to me too. <laughs> I, I was really It's hopeful. still very frustrating to me. But when it first started, I, I shifted my whole orientation towards work. I'd never been interested in public work before, frankly. I didn't see that I had any particular potential to contribute to it. It wasn't something that particularly interested me. Not that I didn't think it was important, but other people are doing it and they could do it better than I. But I had an opportunity, I thought. I had been in the space, I had an idea, I had a quantitative study that would make a very clear case for what was happening and to implicate people's own self-interest. This should finally help, not just me, but all of these people working this way at the outset of the pandemic should finally help tip the scales and make the US public recognize that this system is deathly dangerous for everybody. You may not care at all about ethics, you may not care about racial justice, you may not care about the violence perpetrated in this system, but don't you care about your grandmother? Don't you care about your family or your neighborhood? Even if you live in wealthy north suburbs of Chicago, this affects you. But rather than kind of the decline of the carceral state in the US, what we've seen is its intensification. Right now you have had a reduced a reduce rate of incarceration in state prison systems in many states, not all of them. But 
that's really accidental. It's just log jams at the front end rather than deliberate action to release people. And, and a lot of those are somewhat artificial because you have increases in jail populations right. because prisons right. aren't taking jail prisoners for a right. lot of that. And a lot time. of people are not in jails or prisons who will be once the, the log jam is cleared. So we're going to see a dramatic increase, whether it exceeds the, the prior incarceration rate, the incarceration we had down to the pandemic or not, I'm not quite sure, but it's nothing like what it looks like now, which is an artificially low rate. What you've seen that's more, I think, indicative of what's going to happen, what really has happened is the federal prison population has gone up during the pandemic or under Biden has gone up and actually went down under Trump. Which <laughs> just to put aside, he did promise to reduce it by more than 50%. Right. That is, <laughs> so. The ICE population has increased by 70%. I think it might now be about 50% over what Biden uh, inherited when he took office. So we're seeing not just not the dramatic movement that I thought we might be able to see towards the end of mass incarceration, we're seeing the opposite. And this is incredibly frustrating to me. Uh, I mean, to speak of it as frustrating to me is almost obscene. Like it's frustrating to 2 million people who are locked up. It's frustrating to millions of people who are affected by their family members being locked up. This is frustrating for at a scale that you know, far exceeds any one individual. Um, why did that happen? I don't know. What do, you, what do you think? I mean, I know you're interviewing me, but what do you think? No, I, I think about this all the time. You know, I led a very large scale effort to get uh, decarceration and then vaccinations in our prisons. And we won on the second thing. Our governor did start doing vaccinations. And we're one of the states that's actually doing boosters. There's already been 10,000 boosters. So I'm very proud of that. But I'm very frustrated that our governor hasn't commuted anybody. I mean, well, three or four people in her, you know, in this time. And uh you know, that's that's very frustrating to me. I wish I understood because it seems to me the public health case is very strong. And I understand that people are deathly worried of the you're allowing a jailbreak and someone recidivates and that one person then makes the whole thing uh, look like a failure, which is what happens over and over again. People use anecdotal evidence uh, to suggest that someone's move was incredibly risky. Uh, we've seen it in all levels. We'll talk about this a little bit more in a second. Um, but, you know, I think, you know, we it has to be, I think what you were suggesting earlier, there has to be something so deeply rooted after 50 years of tough on crime. And, you know, we've seen nothing but television and movies for 50 years that say you have to, that the only acceptable answer is harsh punishment for people who commit crimes. And no matter what the result of that has been, we've been told that over and over and over and over again in every single form of media and every single, uh, you know, social experiment. We, you know, it just that... Uh, it, I feel like it's got to be part of our blood at this point. And I, you know, only the people who've actually experienced it uh, or, or, or know people who've experienced it or have come closely into contact with it, see enough of the truth of it to be able to, it's like uh, there was an old movie uh, uh, where a guy would wear glasses and all of a sudden he could see all the aliens. And, and you know, I feel like that's kind of what it's like. If you've been close enough to see what it's really like, if you put on the glasses, you know that the system is a total failure and it's bringing, uh, you know, disaster to our communities or at least certain communities. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, if you haven't worn the glasses, you think 
you're still drinking the Kool-Aid, you know, and I think, you know, to some extent before I was incarcerated, I was probably drinking a lot of the Kool-Aid, even though I thought I was, you know, really in tune with all the social justice, you know, whatever, uh, you know, I, I still thought, well, on the whole, the system's probably, you know, I mean, but, you know, you learn a lot in a short period of time, really, you know, I mean, I think the very first episode of this podcast, uh, the one of the first things I said was you'd have to be, uh, you know, essentially blind to walk into a prison or jail in the United States and not see the racial disparities. That's still true. If anyone would be willing to walk in, they would see that, you know, it's just most people aren't willing to walk in. And the only way that they experience the criminal justice system is by watching Law and Order. And that is deeply dishonest and unethical television, in my opinion. And there's lots of examples beyond them. I just tend to pick on them. But I mean, I think it's indicative of so throughout the recent months in particular, I've been thinking of the U.S. prison and jail system as a microcosm of the rest of society. How we manage or fail to manage the pandemic there is a reflection of what's happening at a broader scale, more generally in American society. And I think maybe the same reasons that there have has not been the movement that I you know, maybe naively hope there would be. There are many well, I just want to I want to push back a little bit because yeah. you've said that a couple times now. I think the movement is there. There are a lot of people who fought extremely hard and worked incredibly hard to try to get relief right. to people. It just hasn't worked. You know, so we're, we're not doing it the right way, maybe. Yeah. You know, I don't. By movement, I didn't necessarily mean political movement. I meant like actual concrete policy movement. Um, okay. But I, I do also feel like I have, and I think by extension as a collective, we have not been effective in the way that we want to be. Um, and I don't mean that as a criticism of people's intentions or, or commitment, but rather we need to figure out how to have more effective mass politics. And this is not- yeah, We definitely didn't win, that's for right. sure. <laughs> it's true, not just for decarceration, but it's true for all sorts of other policy platforms that we that are have massive popular support, yet nonetheless aren't implemented. Like how do we generate a kind of effective mass politics? So the movement is there. How do we translate that you know, social movement into effective policy movement. So that, that's what I meant to indicate. But, but I, I'm thinking, you know, what you see with the carceral system, whenever somebody proposes mass releases, or even just releases, the initial response that I often see is that person did something wrong. They deserve whatever comes to them. You must hold them accountable. It's always about individual virtue, individual responsibility. To shift the paradigm in the U.S. from individual behavior, individual responsibility to collective responsibility is incredibly difficult. And we're seeing this now also with the rest of our pandemic policies, you know, the CDC, the White House, uh, COVID commission, whatever. Everybody is reinforcing, even public health agencies that are ostensibly predicated on a collective epidemiological concept of health dynamics of networks. Everybody's reinforcing this individualistic paradigm. Now we, you know, criticize liberal individualism all the time, but then we reproduce it ourselves often as well. And I think but it's even, so deeply rooted. It's hard. Yeah, go ahead. Even within individualism, though, you know, there's a uh, an old doctrine, you know, that, uh, uh, you know, the exact name will, will probably elude me, but the idea is basically that what are you individually responsible for? Are you responsible for the predictable outcomes of things that you support? You know, like for instance, if I gave a speech and I, you know, for instance, and I suggested a bunch of people attack the Capitol, am I responsible for that? We're seeing some of that work out in, in, in discussions right now. Uh, and some people say, yes, that you're not just responsible. I mean, that you're not responsible for utterances 
that you didn't have an intention to have a bad result, but when you say something that you know as an individual that should have a that could have a bad result, you are to some extent responsible for that. There's at least a theory of ethics that says that. Well, if that's true, and we know that these decisions we're making have poor public health outcomes, aren't we somewhat responsible for that? Just like someone's responsible, for instance, for committing certain crimes or doing certain things. There, we don't get disconnected from the chain of agency of responsibility simply because it's not in the legal books or whatever, right? We're still part of them. And I think ethically, like in terms of interpersonal ethics, in terms of holding myself accountable in the world, how I engage with people. Yeah, I'm with you. I, I, I think individual responsibility is important. Individual responsibility is not a framework for effective policymaking. It is not a framework for effective governance. It is not a framework for public health policy, and it's not a framework for effective criminal legal systems. We, we have to think about other ways of producing the effects we want to see in the world. So what we've seen is that a commitment to punitive individualism of the kind that we see in the US does not produce collective safety. It does not prevent crime. It does not you know, facilitate personal transformation or breaking you know, intergenerational trauma, poverty, does the exact opposite, more deeply entrenches all these things. So great, you, your ethical theory might say, I don't mean yours, I just mean one's ethical theory, oh, gotcha. might say, you know, we need to enforce uh, retributive justice upon this person. Okay, well, that comes with a cost. And that comes at a cost, not just to that person, but to their family, to their community, ultimately to the country, ultimately to you, the one who's enforcing this punishment. This is why I said earlier, there's like a clearly a deeply sadomasochistic character in this. There's a sadistic character in the demand that the other be punished. And there's a masochistic acceptance of, of the consequence of this. And there's some weird, I mean, sadomasochism involves a kind of pleasure. I don't know what the pleasure is. There's a perversity in this pleasure. There's some kind of return that people get on this. And I've I, always suggested that people want to have permission to be, you know, it's not that people are opposed to brutality or cruelty. It's that they want to feel like they're justified in their, in, in when they utilize brutality and cruelty, yeah. that, 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 that maybe that's the reward. I don't know that, that, uh, well, that one feels righteousness in the moment of an action of violence. There is a violent tendency. I mean, this is what I think. Oh, yeah. How many movies have we seen where the, 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 the victory moment of the movie is when someone finally kills right. the villain or yeah. you know, whatever? Or, or assassinate Osama bin Laden or whatever. I mean, not, not that I'm defending Osama bin Laden as a virtuous person who should have been like, treated so wonderfully, but the idea that these moments of violence are the moments of moral victory, this is deeply entrenched in our society. And I think it folds into the sadomasochistic drive that is constitutive of what it is to be a human being. So I don't mean that Americans are peculiarly bad. I think this is just like- It's how- such a weird thing though. Like I think about this all the time. Like I could see in that same situation, mm-hmm. feeling bad that we're at the point where the only way that things could be fixed is to kill someone. Right, you know, imagine, could, I mean, it's the same it, logic of, of punishment that, that support that idea. Yeah. So yes, there should be a kind of sadness that there hasn't been successfully cultivated another kind of possibility that the only imagined possibility for ending violence is yet more violence, which of course is never going to work in any case. But even if you think it is going to work, you should mourn that that is the position you're in rather than celebrate it. You certainly shouldn't celebrate that the, yeah. the, the old, that, that, yay, I'm doing one of the worst things I can do as a human right. being and one that we're willing to punish people for on a regular basis. But we do this all the time uh, as a society. And I think 
throughout the world, people do this. And I think until we, you know, transform our imagination of our relation to violence and to collectivity, such that we can understand violence as reverberating beyond the object upon which it's enacted, the person upon which it's enacted. And we can take that very seriously. I think we're gonna have a very hard time making some fundamental shifts. You can see this in Franz Fanon, you know, a Martinican psychiatrist trained in France and then was part of uh, the Algerian and Tunisian kind of struggles for, for independence. Um, he has this famous book, Wretched of the Earth. The first chapter on violence is read very, very widely. The last chapter, and that's a, like a full-throated embrace of anti-colonial violence. Uh, Jean-Paul Sartre wrote the forward and kind of made this even more and more famous and more strident in how he rendered it in, his, in the forward, or the preface, I forget what it is. But the last chapter of that book is Fanon, who's a psychiatrist working with his patients, some of whom had been freedom fighters who had been tortured, some who were torturers themselves, French colonists. And what you come to, rather than the kind of very optimistic liberation through violence of the first chapter is the recognition that anti-colonial violence, which is perhaps necessary, is important. This isn't a denigration of that, what I'm saying, nor what Fanon says, but that it reverberates, it doesn't end. And it comes back in your dreams, it comes back in your relations, you know, the, the, the French torturer who tortures the freedom fighter and then goes home and tortures his own children and his wife, et cetera. There is no escape from this, from this violence. And if we're imagining that we're going to make our world a, a better place or a safer place through just deeper and deeper infliction of violence on people's bodies and psyches, lives and communities, it doesn't take us where people imagine perhaps it's going to take us. Well, and obviously it hasn't, right? I mean, like, you know, I mean, it's funny you see in the press almost every day, you know, the object of scorn and the reason we have violence is apparently criminal justice reform, which we barely passed. You know, I mean, we, I can I can name probably all the major pieces of legislation that passed across the country. It would take me a little while, but I'm fairly familiar with all of it. But it's not significant and definitely, I mean, it is significant and has helped people, but it's not, you know, the kind of thing that would cause. The, but, but we have spent, in, you know, every year we spend $80 billion on policing, and yet we have an increase in violence. Who gets blamed? It's the criminal justice reform, not the, not the policing, you know, not the, the, the poverty, not the, you know, it's always the, it's always the thing that's the probably least responsible if you, if you want to be, you know, totally honest, you know, yeah. in my. So I feel like, you know, I can, you can invoke these kinds of high languages of violence, like I just did to some degree, not very eloquently. But I'm not very interested in that. I want to know what's going to have an effect. <laughs> I mean, I can. Condemn. I think we all do. Yeah. I mean, I mean, we can, I've personally been involved in passing. I think it's now right. like 51 pieces of legislation that had, right. you know, optimally some effect. You know, and I'm very proud of all of that. But I really like for us to do some of the right. major stuff, like you know, uh, end you know life and long sentences, uh, right. or deal with life and long sentences, uh, get rid of some of the more uh, terrible abuses that are happening in our prisons, especially right. in the South. Uh, although not exclusively in the South, uh, you know, there's a, there's a laundry list that would go on for weeks, right. but, you know, I mean. And this is, I think, you know, so important that we tether our, our work and our rhetorical work to the effect. And this isn't a criticism. This is just like thinking like, this is what the challenge always is, especially as an academic. I don't really, I don't have an academic position right now. I don't identify necessarily as an academic, but a lot of this work has been done within academic circles. 
what's rewarded within the university? Publications, notoriety, press mentions, not policy effect. I mean, of course, we all want that in some sense, but it's not actually what's incentivized. And so I think it takes a kind of a work, a, a dedication, a sacrifice sometimes, because sometimes effect doesn't come with all the other things that are rewarded. So how do we orient collectively our work towards effect? Every, you know, almost everybody that I talk to in the U.S. rhetorically seeks the end of mass incarceration, condemns this system. But very few people, and I don't mean you or others who are really engaged in this kind of work, but just in the general public, have a concrete sense of what that would entail, how that could be possible. What are the policy paradigms that we need to you know, push forward? Who might represent them among the representatives that we could vote for now? Or why would we be discontent with the current options we have and demand something of a practical policy platform for doing that? This is not part of the common language in the US, at least as, insofar as I've seen. I maybe have a narrow view of it, but I think that's what we need to do. We need to push not, we have enough moral condemnation of these things, but we need like real policy movement. And how do we do that? And I'm not always sure it's through you know, th through the moralizing languages, which are totally appropriate, but I I'm not sure they're that effective ultimately. They, they, they deliver their own kind of satisfaction that often diverts energy from the practical work that needs to be done. We have suggested several things, and we'll talk about that in just a second, that could potentially be solutions. But first, I want to just, do you want to just tell people, you know, obviously, you know, in Michigan, uh, at the initial stage, we had 144 people die in the first wave of COVID, and then we got vaccinations, and basically no one died until this month. And now we've had six more deaths uh, you've written about Omicron being a new kind of real and present danger. Do you want to talk a little bit about that before we get to solutions, just so yeah. people get a feeling of kind of the public health picture on what why Omicron is again ramping yeah. this up? And like I said, we're already seeing the effects of it where I live. Right. Well, one thing to say is that whatever numbers we hear, you can look up and UCLA COVID behind bars is a great resource for that. The New York Times, until they stopped aggregating information because it wasn't reliable anymore and it was already limited, they stopped in really the end of March, 2021. All the numbers that we can get, and I'm glad that people are pulling together the numbers, dramatically underrepresent the scale of the problem. So New York Times, which had the most comprehensive database for cases and deaths inside jails, prisons, and ICE facilities, they were only able to get information on about half of those facilities in the U.S. And is that mostly because of lack of transparency from the DOCs and the jails? Yeah. Uh, and there's no reporting mechanism. There's no regulatory infrastructure to demand reporting. Even that which, that which is reported is not necessarily reliable. There's no supervisory structure to ensure that. There's no auditing structure in most cases. Well, and when you get to jails, you're talking about counties. And so, yeah. you know, in Michigan, there's 83 counties. That's, right. you know, 80 something jails. And right. I honestly couldn't tell you. I, I have a very good idea of what's happening at the state level, but I have very little idea of how many people have died at the, at the, at the county right. level. It's so disaggregated that there's a lot of power that's wielded by the individual administrators. In counties, that's typically in 80% of county jails in the U.S., the county jails are run by the sheriff. The sheriff is an elected politician in most instances. They have significant personal investment in not exposing bad things happening in their facilities for which they are then held responsible and stand to lose electorally. They are politicians, they have political interests and they're given almost total autonomy over the system and what's disclosed or not. 
You know, you have prison administrators that the incentives are not quite the same, but they also have incentives to minimize what's happening, to not test adequately so as to discover what's happening, to record cause of death in a different kind of way, to release somebody to a hospital so they're no longer in custody and they die there rather than in their facility. We've seen this, this has been talked by the New York Times and Stat News and others. We've seen this in, in some instances, and this is happening all over in, in ways that are never documented. That no journalist ever gets a whiff of, and we don't we don't know. So the numbers are huge. There have been, according to New York Times, their last point data point in the end of March was 661,000 cases inside U.S. jails, prisons, and ICE facilities. But the number of real so that's half of all facilities have recorded, and then also within those half of facilities, the vast majority were not testing to a remotely adequate degree. So we have no idea how many cases and deaths there have been inside these facilities. There have been, I'm confident, well over a million cases, certainly now, because that 661,000 before the Delta and Omicron variants, which had huge surges. So definitely well over a million cases. I don't know how many deaths, many thousands. But each of those cases and deaths on the inside of these facilities translates to a much larger number on the outside. And this is what the research that, that you're going to speak to me about, I think, showed, which we started in Cook County in Chicago and showed that when you had a big outbreak there in March of 2020, March and April 2020, about three weeks later, so April 19th, about 16% of all cases statewide and coincidentally in Chicago, 16% also, were attributable to, independently attributable to spread from the jail. So about 54% of cases that were linked to the jail. But once you do a multivariate regression and you control for these other factors that we know are associated with the spread of COVID at that time, which is you know, population density, racial demographics, and you isolate just the independent association with the jails, 16% of cases. And at that time, there are thousands of cases across Illinois. So in a short period of time, you have the jail spinning out an enormous number of cases. How does this happen? People come through the jail, they often stay there only a number of days. They're exposed to a very high risk space for, uh, for infection. They get an infection, not everyone, but many. They are then discharged from the jail. In many cases, they've never been tested. If they have been tested, they may not have uh, come out positive on the test because they haven't had sufficient incubation period to turn positive. They've been exposed, but they do not yet turn positive on the test. They go back to their communities thinking that they are you know, totally fine, virus-free, they may be symptomatic or may not be and end up spreading to other people around them uh, unaware of what's happening. And you have multiplication of cases in this way. So I mentioned earlier, you have 11 million separate admission release cycles through US jails every single year. That's just local jails. That's a lot of opportunities for people to go in, get infected, go back out and infect other people. You have enormous proportions of incarcerated populations in the US who have been exposed to the virus and have become infected. So you have to expect that a large proportion of people who recycle through jails are going to be infected. They are going to spread it. So we had a later study, a national study. Um, Daniel Chen and I, my colleague at the, at the World Bank, he's also at the, he's an economist and, and a legal scholar at the, in Toulouse in France and also at the World Bank. And we had a later study, a national study, that tried to look at this at the national level. Uh, and there we found that, well, really what that study was looking at was the effect of decarceration on reductions in COVID case counts in communities, COVID case growth rates in communities. And we found that decarcerating was associated with significant reductions in the daily COVID case growth rate. By extrapolation, we can conclude that 
tens of millions of cases, sorry, millions of cases and tens of thousands of deaths around the US are attributable to, to jail-related spread. But that study, none of the work I've been able to do so far actually has been able to account for staff. And you have people going in and out every day who are incarcerated. Sorry, you have people who are released every day who have been incarcerated. You have four, over 400,000 guards at jails and prisons in the US who go in and out every single day they have extraordinary potential to spread the virus. And not just once, now we see with Omicron or with Delta, many people are becoming infected multiple times. Each one of those times, they become an infectious vector for others. Um, so the public health conclusion here is very simple. It's just these are epidemic engines. These are multipliers of infection that then spread disease to the, to the whole of American communities. Also, we're in a pandemic. The US leads case counts across the world. A pandemic means that this is not isolated to one place or constrained by borders, it spreads everywhere. So the number of cases that have been spread internationally by the US carceral system is large. I have no idea what it is, nobody can say, but it's significant. So this is not just about US public health, this is about global public health. The US carceral system, the largest in the world by far, is a massive global biosecurity hazard. And there should be international pressure, there hasn't been so far as I know, uh, but there should be international pressure to say for reasons of global public health and biosecurity, this system has to be changed. So one of the solutions you're just referring to is this notion that correctional officers should be vaccinated, should be uh, responsible uh, in a number of ways. I think most states would suggest that they currently can barely staff their facilities, uh, that they're worried about that more correctional officers will quit or not show up for work if they mandate vaccines. And in many states, it's also a collective bargaining issue. Uh, I know you've suggested that the CDC might be a mechanism by which this could be checked. Do you have any kind of thoughts about how, I mean, it, as much as I'd like to just, you know, bash the, 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 the states and the systems because they're, uh, I'm obviously no fan, uh, they do have, you know, there, there are some problems they're dealing with here. Do you have any thoughts about that? Well, I have like retrospective critical thoughts that are not so helpful for now, and then maybe some other thoughts for now. So, I mean, if we're talking about the CDC, what was really upsetting to me and to a lot of people, I know you also, uh, was that when the CDC was coming up with their guidelines for the initial distribution of vaccines, which as many will recall, were in short supply initially, they came up with a system of prioritization. Healthcare workers were prioritized, often inappropriately. People who are actually at low risk of exposure, healthcare workers who are not directly involved in COVID care, were prioritized. Um, people in nursing homes were prioritized as they should have been, that was appropriate. Staff at jails and prisons and ICE facilities were prioritized, but not incarcerated people. And at that time, there was clear evidence that there was available to the CDC, they were very well aware of it, that people who are incarcerated in the US were at higher risk of exposure than any other group in the country. For basic epidemiological reasons, for basic bioethical reasons, which you know, that, that is the mandate of this, the ACIP group, ACIP group kind of, that decides this prioritization schema is to follow bioethical and epidemiological principles. They completely pushed that to the side and ignored this population. They refused to prioritize them. That's a massive, abdication of responsibility, basic public health responsibility, uh, bioethical, just whatever, a basic responsibility. I don't care what the qualifier is. And that harms everybody. Of course, it harms incarcerated people most, and then their families and their communities, but the whole country. 
So that was very frustrating. You saw it repeated with boosters. There has been no deliberate campaign by the CDC, which again is responsible for prioritizing booster allocation to get boosters to incarcerated people, even though they remain at highest risk of exposure. And also, I don't know about highest, but one of the highest risk categories for severe outcomes, the risk of mortality and a significant morbidity for people who are incarcerated, who are denied proper healthcare in most instances, even though that's a violation of their constitutional rights. Legal rights is actually not quite in the Constitution, but not that the Eighth Amendment seems to have much meaning yeah. with the courts anymore. But yes. I mean, so, so this is repeatedly incredibly frustrating. And you see states follow suit. If the CDC does not give this guideline, many states refuse to, to prioritize people as well. Although it was within their right to do so, they generally refuse to do so. And you see now, pretty, well, pretty you've also mentioned that it's an accelerant for community spread. It's not right. only right. that it is incredibly dangerous to right. folks inside, including correctional officers, but uh, who have died at pretty high rates, and yeah, many have died. So yeah, that's very frustrating. So yes, the CDC could have done much better. Can they do something better now? Yes, they could launch a campaign, an educational campaign for states. Uh, they could work with the White. I mean, the CDC has limited power to institute policy but they can issue guidelines and with their guidelines, they can influence policy to a very significant degree. So yes, they should do that. But it's, I mean, now at this stage, it's about mandates, um, not for incarcerated people who in general have actually had much higher rates of uptake than their guards. We actually had 80% uptake yeah. in, you know, which is higher than the general population. General population, yeah. Um, so, but, I mean, I think it's unethical and inappropriate to mandate vaccination for people who are incarcerated who have their rights of bodily autonomy stripped from them generally and are extremely vulnerable and have good historical reasons to distrust medical interventions. I'm not at the point where I'm comfortable with saying that mandates for incarcerated people, forced mandates are, you know, if you mandate it for a staff member, a guard, and you say, as a condition of keeping your job, where you are charged with protecting people who are incarcerated in this facility, Part of your responsibility is to get vaccinated. If they don't want to get vaccinated, they can quit. Somebody who's in yeah, but that, can't that just gets us that gets us back to the problem, though, which is yeah. that in many, especially southern states, uh, they've you know underhired or underpaid for so long that they're at risk of almost total system collapse, right? Because they're at such risk of right. uh, you know from correctional officers, yeah. Uh, and like I said, it's also in a lot of cases, it's a collective bargaining issue. So unless there's yeah. a public health mandate. But you don't solve the staffing problem, which is real in some places and imaginary in others. Like it's an imaginary problem at Rikers. It's a real problem in Georgia and Alabama and Florida and other places as well. But you don't stop, solve a staffing problem by saying, OK, you are you're choosing to be a disease vector that can bring in an epidemic outbreak in this facility. Which is then going to thin out all your correctional officers. Right now. So we'll just, we'll just go with that. That's, that's not a, a rational decision-making process. So to me, that's not a, that's not a good argument for opposing mandating vaccines for government. Well, that's definitely the right answer, which is yeah. you've, you're basically protecting your employees by letting them spread the virus to everybody And else. ultimately harm themselves and their coworkers and the people who are most vulnerable, which are incarcerated people. So, I mean, the, the real problem with the so-called staffing problem is that we have far too many people inside these facilities. We incarcerate at completely indefensible rates. So if you cannot staff the facilities that have a legal obligation to provide safe environments, because you cannot staff them, they are more unsafe than they ordinarily are, which is already illegally unsafe. These are incredibly uh, dangerous facilities that are you know, feature rampant human rights abuses in normal times, 
then clearly the rational response is we have to decarcerate, especially when it's clear that a very large proportion of people who are incarcerated in these facilities, their incarceration does not, by any stretch of the imagination, serve public safety. It does not improve safety for people in the general population. In fact, during a pandemic, it very clearly uh, undermines it. Well, this kind of gets us to kind of the last kind of important, you know, weighty question I think we'll probably be dealing with. You kind of do, as you're saying, you land, like my podcast name, on the subject of decarceration, which, you know, I obviously am very much for. Yeah. Uh, here's the problem, though. You know, our movement is probably stronger than it's ever been in a lot of ways. It's, you know, we've got more people involved than we ever, want, we ever have before. We've had a lot of, you know, success at certain level more than we have before. Uh but here's the thing. It doesn't seem like the vast majority of the people in this country believe decarceration is a good idea. Uh, you know, it's an ever increasing number of people who are with us, but there's obvious, there's still an awful lot of people who are against us. Yeah. So, you know, it's one thing to say decarcerate. Do you have kind of a political strategy for how decarceration is possible? And I know that's a big question. You may not have an answer. It's something I struggle with every day. Uh, you know, how do we get from here, from here to there, I guess? Yeah. There are different levels at which to answer the question. I think we have to answer it at multiple levels all the time. Um, one is mechanistic. Maybe I'll put that on the back burner for the moment. The first one that I think is really important is we need a, a vision. <laughs> I mean, you saw Trump be incredibly successful with manipulating masses, with producing political force, not for productive policy, but for whatever he wanted. You saw Bernie Sanders generate affective investment. People cared about the Bernie Sanders campaign. They, you know, a lot of people who don't have a lot of money were giving money to it, they're going to rallies. There was a narrative that he crafted around the campaign that was effective. The Democratic Party historically has really shied away from affective politics, or aesthetic politics, like the politics of feeling. And I think for a big project like mass decarceration in the US, which is going to take massive monetary investments, is going to take a shift in the ethical paradigms that kind of dictate policy and attitudes and behaviors in the US, we need a politics of mass feeling. We have to generate an effective narrative paradigm. So, you know, Trump has his, you know, make America great again. Nobody knows quite what that means, but we need something like an organizing paradigm. Like I that. think it means make America white again, but I'm just going sure, to, <laughs> it's mean, a 1950s callback, right? But, but, but I mean, in terms of policy, you know, if you ask people, what, what is the policy that is behind that exactly? You know, a lot of people, most people wouldn't have a very good answer for you, but he produced a rhetorical framework that generated this. We need to produce a similarly effective, and I don't mean similar in Trump's, in Trump's reactionary sense, but in the sense of generating mass feeling, a mass buy-in, a similarly kind of aesthetically charged movement that is backed by concrete policy demands that people can recognize and that people rally behind. So I think piecemeal decarceration is really important, but is very limited in its capacity to generate massive buy-in. So, you know, you have like the New Deal, you have now the Green New Deal, we need something parallel to like the Green New Deal. You'd be hard pressed to find somebody in America who doesn't have some sense of what that is and probably has strong feeling towards it. A lot of people negative, a lot of people positive. But without a grand narrative, a grand ambition like that, I think it's gonna be hard to generate the momentum we need for real decarceral movement. 
Now, I think even the marginal gains are important. The marginal gains represent people's lives who are no longer in cages. So I don't, I don't mean to denigrate that at all. I will do everything I can for any marginal gain I can. At the same time, I want to think about how can we produce a collective organizing framework where every politician in the U.S. is held accountable to say, what is your stance on America's national decarceration program, on this specific proposal, on the target of reducing in the next five years you know, the incarcerated population in the U.S. by over half, or you know, these kinds of ambitious, as a provisional step, you know, these kinds of ambitious proposals. I don't see that right now. We, we talk about people condemning mass incarceration. So Biden condemns mass incarceration on the campaign trail, gets an office and, you know, increases the, the incarcerated population. So we don't have a framework by which to hold politicians and representatives accountable. But I think that's one part. The other part is that we need to work at the very nitty gritty logistical uh, levers that are available to us. So I mean, the lowest hanging fruit, because it's most obvious and also probably politically practical, is Biden's pardon power, governor's pardon power. You know, in, in Colorado, you just had this exercise to a significant degree. Is it adequate? Not remotely, but it's something. Biden has you know, 18,300 something pardon up uh, petitions on his desk. Sitting he, on his desk, yeah. Absolutely. He hasn't touched a single one. That should be like everybody in the nation should know that and think that that's obscene, especially it, it's at least duplicitous. Even if you aren't a big fan of mass incarceration, this guy said he was going to do it. He's doing the exact opposite. You know, that should not be a defensible position. But most people aren't aware of this. How do we raise awareness around that and force that kind of mechanism? But then once you actually have people in power who are invested in this, we have a lot of mechanisms. So the Department of Justice and the Civil Rights Division, there is a lot of civil rights legislation that can be creatively used to force state DOCs to change policies, to force police departments to change policies. Um, you know, local judges uh, have power to release people. Sheriffs have power to release people and to change also the conditions under which people are jailed or conditions for which they are jailed so that minor offenses or alleged offenses don't result in completely unnecessary jailing. We need to invest, go ahead. But the, that's sort of the tail wagging the dog in a sense. It gets back to the original problem, which is that politicians to some extent do what they do because they believe that the public is for or against what they're doing. It's very rare that a politician yeah. goes out on a limb. As you said, there's only one or two states that have even you know, made any kind of attempt at this because it's very hard to get people to go out on a limb and do something they think is generally unpopular. Yeah. Uh, you see it as a electoral liability. Yeah. To be it's why you see it's why since Ford you see governors and presidents only pardon people and, and use clemency powers in their second terms yeah. because they're term limited out after that. And that's why I think we have to pair these two things. The first one, which is like this this ambitious aesthetic paradigm, which generates not just the rational arguments that you and I could talk about about the you know the public health benefits, the public safety benefits, all these kinds of things that would come from mass incarceration, which because. I mean, that, that is abundantly clear if anybody cares to look at evidence. But what we're lacking is a mass mobilization of feeling in affirmation of this kind of an agenda, that we would see this as an ethical demand collectively as a nation. This, this doesn't really have a hold in the way that it needs to. How do we generate that at a mass level, not just within academic seminars, not just within niche podcasts, not just within the circles that you and I would like to run, but like, you know, the average person out on Michigan Avenue when I walk, walk out here today, that they know of this and they have a feeling towards it one way or the other. This doesn't happen right now. So I think in order to make, to shift this impression that politicians have 
correctly, the mass decarceration or even just opposing the criminal legal system as it exists is an electoral liability, we have to, we have to shift public attitudes and we have to invest in effective narratives to do that. Um, Oddly enough, one of the closest we came to there at least being a national discussion was when Bernie Sanders talked about voting for people who were incarcerated. That actually did start a lot of discussions and then it kind of died off. But that was kind of an example, I think, of where uh, the traditional tough on crime narratives weren't, wasn't the only voice being heard in the room. And there was actually a discussion going on across uh, the larger, you know, social sphere or whatever. Bernie in his first campaign against uh, Hillary Clinton, he had this uh, campaign video from Immokalee in Florida, agricultural workers. You can look it up on YouTube. And I thought it was an incredibly powerful. I might be a little biased in a sense in, <laughs> in, in support of this, but in support of you know, workers' rights for, for migrant workers, but it was an incredibly powerful, aesthetically charged production. I haven't seen something like that. And maybe it's just because I'm unaware that focuses on incarcerated people, you know, the families of incarcerated people. There are a lot of, and I don't mean to be so crudely instrumentalizing, except for I think it's important that we tell stories. We do not have effective politics unless we generate narrative paradigms around which to organize them, not just rationalize. We do have tons of those stories out there. The problem is they get used campaign by campaign, not as an overarching. Yeah, or uh, I want to see them used campaign by campaign in support of a common cause, in support of a common policy paradigm that is being put forward. So that, you know, a platform of an electoral campaign is we are going to reduce in our state or nationally or in our county, the incarceration rate by this proportion. We're going to do it by changing these policies, by not incarcerating people for all of these completely irrational reasons. You know, we are going, these kinds, and I don't see that kind of organized connection of aesthetically appealing narratives Um, Well, and I think another problem that we see is that these things get uh, fed through a media machine that in a lot of cases is dominated by prosecutors, police, and former prosecutors and police. Uh, You know, I mean, you see what Alvin Bragg came out the other day with a fairly, you know, let's stop putting people in prison for all these reasons. And everyone just were like, you've got to be crazy. You know, I mean, (laughs) it's like you just don't. We're, we're having a hard time getting to the microphone in the same way, I think, or having our ducks in a row in terms of how we talk about why that's a good idea. Well, we also need to make new microphones. You know, if you're expecting to win over the, the New York Post when you're making your decarceral arguments. Yeah, you're not going to win. You, you, maybe we need it for a different strategy. Yeah, so, they're bad faith actors, so you're not going to convince them to do anything different. But it's just good media practice to run a newspaper like the New York Post or like the Atlantic. You know, you publish stuff all over, including reactionary, crazy stuff. You know, that's just what you do. You make money that way as a media organization. If we're relying on persuading existing media apparatuses to take rational stances, to run these, you know, it's not going to work. They are not, you know, ethical political campaigns. That's not how they operate. We need to produce microphones for ourselves. I mean, you're doing it right now, but we also need to do this at a mass scale. That has to be, you know, a, a real focus of an effective political campaign. I mean, people know this, of course, and you see all these people investing from Hillary Clinton to Bernie Sanders and many others investing in their social media efforts and all these kinds of things. But I think we still have a way to go. I think there's a bit of a mimetic impulse in that. Oh, this works. Let's do this rather than an inventive impulse. And I think we need to invent a lot more um, in terms of how we use media narrative and grand narratives of ourselves, what we could be collectively 
in order to push the kind of policy changes we need. I feel like I, I talked earlier about what I care about is effect. And then all I've said are these vague general things without kind of real, but I think I'm, I'm I mean, it's tough, down. man. We're all wrestling with a lot of, right. we're I trying to swim around kind of in frustration, wanting to find some way to kind of push forward. And I feel like the work that I've done, which I worked as hard as I, as I humanly could on it, it hasn't done what I hoped. Yeah. I mean, I, I stand on the shoulders of a mil of, of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, mostly of, you know, people of color who've done this work for a long time. And I've right. probably had, you know, been part of as much wins as anybody. Yeah. And I'm still incredibly frustrated because I, I it's just not, it's not as, it, it's not what's needed. We need, you know, we need so much more and the, the need is so obvious. Yeah. So, People really liked that I asked this last year, so I'm going to ask it again. Were there any criminal justice-related books that you've read that you might recommend to others? Uh, and if you don't have one right off the top of your head, that's fine, too. Well, Elizabeth Hinton's two books, I think, are incredibly important, but probably Cleo um, Gibran Muhammad's Condemnation of Blackness, I think, might be the most important book for me in this, in this area. Um, you know, probably because you said you haven't had Lacan appear in the podcast before, probably some psychoanalytic texts I think are important too, to think about the structure of sadomasochism, to think about aesthetics, pleasure, desire, feeling, and how that's operating within this very violent system and how we have to not just suppress feeling, not just kind of deny that that sadomasochistic impulse is there, but how do we effectively transform it into something productive to end these systems? Uh, so although it's not on the current legal system in the U.S. specifically, I would say maybe just like generally psychoanalytic literature on sadomasochism and affect, I think is quite important. I always ask the same last question. What did I mess up? What question should I have asked but did not? You asked and this is probably, I, I just want to say this, of all the 117 previous episodes, this is the most off of my script I've ever gotten. We had actually a lot of dialogue that was back and forth. So, Well, you... I think you're proving my point there. You chose the wrong interviewee, but uh, that was your first mistake. Um, I don't, I think that's good. I like when there's a lot of back and forth. I, I, per, I prefer to have discussions than, you know, but I still do a lot of prep. That's, so. a, that's a very good question for an interview. You know, I, I, I'm a, working as a psychiatrist for the moment. I never ask patients that we don't, ask patients that, but it would be kind of interesting to hear their answers. Um, I have, uh, you know, the church I go to, the pastor always after his sermon, turns the mic over to the crowd to say, what are your thoughts? Yeah. And ever since then, I, I really appreciated the humility of that. And so ever, you know, I, that's kind of what I modeled this after is always asking a kind of a humility question to, to end yeah. up with. You know, nothing has that I can remember now. And I don't think I, there was anything that's really stuck out to me as I thought that was really the wrong way to ask that question. Um, but I, but I think, you know, right now we do have a lot of, so we talked in grand terms or I did maybe, foolishly in some ways or naively, but we have a lot of practical questions right now that can be dealt with right now. And I think the vaccine mandates are incredibly important for protecting incarcerated people, for protecting staff at these carceral facilities and on the community at large. We've seen that mandates are very effective across uh, various sectors of our society. We need mandates and those can be enforced at the county level, at the state level, at the federal level. That has to happen. There's no legitimate argument for that not happening for staff. I'm a little worried that the Supreme Court is about to weigh in on that question, unfortunately. But <laughs> Well, they're weighing in on Biden's capacity to do it. But there are a lot of other mechanisms by which that can be done. And yeah, businesses can do it, you know, 
that that that's probably i'm just saying i'm a little nervous yeah, about yeah. what but they're going to say and then i mean all these things feel so dissatisfying when i turn to vaccines no we need to release people <laughs> when you put all these little band-aids over a fundamentally broken harmful system it doesn't it doesn't get me going but but we do need to do that also hey vaccine look at like i said we had 144 people die before vaccines in michigan prisons since we got vaccines in michigan prisons basically nobody died until omicron hit <laughs> You know, I mean, that may be that maybe is not what we want, but that's something. And it shows that vaccines are successful and that they protect our people. So the vaccines are very important. There's no question about that. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time, especially right after work. It was really nice to talk to you. I could probably talk to you for another, you know, we've we, we covered a lot of stuff I'm interested in, including Lacan and Fannin and you know, a lot of other interesting stuff. So thanks so much. Thank you. It's my pleasure. All right. I'll see you, Josh. And now my take. Decarceration in the face of COVID makes our communities safer. Even if you do not care about incarcerated people or the families of incarcerated people, you should care about correctional facilities accelerating COVID and sending COVID back into our communities to affect our families and our loved ones. This happens when correctional officers go back and forth to work. This happens when vendors and other workers go back and forth. This happens when visitors go back and forth. And it happens when people are released and or re-enter facilities. The public health impacts of this acceleration of the pandemic largely outweigh any public safety impact from releases. What I wonder is why no media figure asks politicians why they are worried about the public perception of releases, but are not worried about the public health impact of continuing to allow correctional facilities to amplify and manufacture and spread COVID across their communities and states. I also am deeply concerned with all the people suffering inside our prisons and jails. I am so thankful that I got out before this pandemic started. I can only barely comprehend how stressful and challenging it has been to be incarcerated throughout this public health disaster. Waking up every day to see people who you walk with and who you hang out with and who you go to meals with every single day just disappear into COVID segregation, many of them never to be seen again. I wonder why no media figures ask why the death of incarcerated people is acceptable and I am deeply saddened by the loss of life. We have now lost over 150 human beings just in Michigan, and they have mostly died in relative silence. We don't just need political courage. We need the public to be willing to speak truth to power. We need the media to actually do their jobs and commit to speaking truth to power, as opposed to simply repeating what they think is the most popular and easiest path. And I think Eric was right. We need to create our own media. We need to use whatever microphones we can create and share the truth wherever we can. And we need to work together to ensure that people hear the case for decarceration, hear the reasons why these people matter and why these deaths are unacceptable, and to hear the evidence that proves that when we remain committed to incarceration, it destroys the health of our communities. I get that everyone is working on different priorities, but there are times when we really need to speak with one voice and speak with that one voice loudly. This has been one of those times, and so far we have not found that common voice. We have not spoken together with that common voice, and there have been real and tragic consequences. 
Very few things make me more depressed than watching how this pandemic has broken down, especially in our correctional facilities. As always, you can find the show notes or leave us a comment at decarcerationnation.com. If you want to support the podcast directly, you can do so from patreon.com slash decarcerationnation. For those of you who prefer a one-time donation, you can now go to our website and give a one-time donation. Thanks to all of you who have joined us from Patreon or who have given a donation. You can also support us in other non-monetary ways by leaving a five-star review from iTunes or add us on Stitcher, Spotify, or from your favorite podcast app. Special thanks to Andrew Stein, who does the editing and post-production for me, to Ann Espo for helping with our transcripts and social media images, and to Alex Mayo, who helps with our website and with our YouTube production. Make sure and add us on your social media and share our posts across your network. Also thanks to my employer, Safe and Just Michigan, for helping to support the Decarceration Nation podcast. Thanks so much for listening to this first Decarceration Nation podcast of 2022. See you next time.